This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together, gathered to deal with your word. We thank you for the wonderful messages we have heard at this Congress. And we ask you to be with us this afternoon so that we discover that your word can tell us again and again what your will is for our life. Lord, bless all those who are here. Let each one experience your presence in his or her life. And help us, Lord, to live life at its best as you have planned it for us, and not only a little bit from the life. Be with us, lead us with your Holy Spirit, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this afternoon we will have a look, a specific look on the book of Daniel. Of course, I mean, if you would like to know what uh, the dreams, the explanation for the dreams, then you can look up in, even in the internet, because there are some websites where things are explained for you. So I will not deal with the basic uh, things that uh, are in Daniel. I would like rather to have maybe another perspective on the book of Daniel. And I will explain you in a few moments why I use this approach for this afternoon and what are the points, the focus points for this afternoon. But before starting, I would like to share with you an experience I had in one of our churches. I was uh, traveling in another country and... Uh, okay... We wait until you find a seat. So for those who came later, there's a German translation. Für diejenigen, die später gekommen sind, es gibt eine deutsche Übersetzung dort in den letzten Reihen. Those who need it. So I was traveling in another country, and um, Usually on Sabbath, I'm uh, preaching in churches, and at noon, I was invited by an Adventist family for lunch. And there we were, we sat, there were quite a number of invitees, we were more people together, we discussed, and during our discussion, at a certain point, um, the sister who invited us to, to her family She said, Brother Maurer, I need to confess something. And I said, well, we are not in the Catholic Church. We don't need to confess to people. But, uh, well, if you want to tell me something, that's fine. She said, look, I'm working as a dentist assistant. And she says, I've been uh, in, uh, working with this um, dentist for the last 20 years. He's a very correct person, works very good, people are very satisfied with his work, and I try to, to help and to support as good as it, uh, as it is possible, and I have a very good 
um, relationship with the patients, and uh, uh, we, are, we have an excellent working atmosphere. And then she said, Brother Mauro, last week he found out that I'm an Adventist. After 20 years. And she said, he went so angry with me. He said, I cannot forgive you this. He said, I always have seen that you are a special person, that you are so kind. You, you uh, spread something of, a, of, a, of an inner peace that does good. And I always have asked myself, how, where does this woman take her power, her strength to be a person like this. And I cannot forgive you that for 20 years you have hidden this from me and you didn't tell me who you are and why you are what you are. Now, maybe you are shocked. I was as well. But in the, in the meantime, looking a little bit closer on different histories, life histories, I discovered that this is not only a single case. I can tell you from my personal experience of people whom I know that this happens again and again and again. So my question is, what is Adventist identity? Is it just being in the list of the members? What is Adventist identity? Does it mean to be two hours a week an Adventist and then to be like any other person? What is Adventist identity? Now let me give you another experience, also from, from my travels. I was traveling in another country, and then um, after one of my sermons about um, the Sabbath, one brother came to me and said, Brother Maura, I would like to share an experience with you. Maybe you are interested, and maybe it helps you for some illustrations. And he said, look... Um, I came to this country as an immigrant. And I was looking for work, but uh, I arrived in a moment where unemployment went up and employment opportunities went down. So I was a little bit disappointed. Well, where to find something to work? Because I have no money and, I mean, I need to survive. So somebody from the church told me, look, come with me. I heard that uh, our boss has, has uh, one place because somebody left, so maybe you get this job. So he went for an interview and went in, and um, the owner of the company, he asked him, because it was, well, not a, such a big company, but a building company, and um, the owner, he, he interviewed him and asked him questions and said, well, it seems that you are qualified, so uh, you can start working here next Monday. And he said, our brother said to him, well, this is very kind of you, but I still have one more question before I can decide if I accept the job or not. And the man looked at him, he said, what? You want to decide if you, de if you accept the job or not. Before, um, in front of the door, there are another 100 persons wanting your job. And he said, well, but still, I need to clarify something with you. He said, what? And he said, look, um, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And this means that I will 
work as good as I can for you, for the money you offer me, that's fine. But in winter time, I will have to leave work two hours earlier because of my Sabbath. My Sabbath begins when sun gets down and it ends when the sun is down. Are you a Jew? No, no, I am an Adventist. Oh. But he said, and how do you imagine this? He said, well, you can deduct it from my salary or you can ask me to work each day a little bit longer, but in winter time, I will have to leave two hours before sundown. The man looked at him and said, my dear friend, you have the job. You don't need to work longer and I will not deduct anything from your salary. I need people like you. So he went out and had the job. And the next Sabbath, a number of church members came to him when he, when he told the story and said, you are lucky. We are working in winter time until the end of the program. We don't get any extra money and we have a problem with our conscience before God. It's good to have a clear Adventist identity, isn't it? I like the book of Daniel because in the book of Daniel we get a few hints. And in fact, in the book of Daniel we find the gospel in a concentrated way. Of course, we always need to see the whole Bible but sometimes we focus on something specific. So what will be the fresh look at Daniel? Let's look how the book of Daniel addresses the question of identity. Then let's also look a little bit how the book of Daniel connects prophecy to identity. And then also let's look to the book of Daniel how this book connects lifestyle to identity and prophecy. And then let's also see how this book connects all these elements with the mission of the church. When we speak about identity, it's important for us to know who we are in order to know where to go. You see, sometimes it's so difficult, also in our churches. Don't you experience it sometimes in your Sabbath school groups? Some people would define the Adventist church in one way. Some people would define the Adventist church in another way. And sometimes we have the impression that these are totally different churches. Is my church a club or is my church something that has been brought into life by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God who became man himself. It's important to know who we are in order to know where we go. So what has prophecy and identity in common? Prophecy led our pioneers around 1844 together to come together, to unite. Prophecy determined the rays of the Seventh-day Adventist Church itself, and 
prophecy still keeps this church with a focus on mission. So if you look into Adventist history, you will discover that especially the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, especially the area of prophecy in the Bible, has brought together our church pioneers. Just a question for you. How old do you think our pioneers were? Sometimes we think on the pictures where they have birth and they, they look old and... No, no. Our pioneers, when they started to study the Bible and the prophecies, they were in your age. Between 17 and 27, 30, most of them. This was the age of the pioneers. Why I mention this? Because... It's important that you understand that you are the church. The church is not the building. The church is not the offices of the union, of the division, of the general conference. The church is you. And that's important. So around 1844, I mean before, when Miller started to, to preach, and then, of course, they, many people listened but after 1844, when most of the others abandoned this idea of, of understanding and applying prophecy, the Adventist church really grew, expanded, and grew in knowledge. So prophecy determined the race of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, one question. Do you know who has determined what we should believe and what we should not believe? Do you know? Who has determined? Sorry? Yes. It's all in the Bible. But I mean also Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists, they also have the Bible, but they believe the different things. You know that we have 28 fundamental beliefs. Now, who determined? what we are going, I mean, not, not who determined how many should be and how to organize them, but who has determined what we believe. Of course, the ultimate reason, it's God, but it was a thorough study of the pioneers. Ellen White writes that sometimes when they didn't have clarity on some points from the Bible, sometimes they prayed and read the Bible and discussed. And then they prayed again, and they read the Bible again, and then they discussed again. And she writes, sometimes they did it until midnight, sometimes even until almost in the morning, because they struggled and wanted to find out what is the will of God? What should we do? I mean, it's interesting that in the beginning, I mean, uh, after 1844 and before uh, 1863, sometimes they were studying the Bible and, and smoking because they had no idea that this is not good. You understand? But when God showed them this is not the way, then they changed their lifestyle. 
So prophecy has determined the, the growth, the establishment and the growth of our church. And prophecy is still keeping this church alive. You see, there have been several other churches which have developed in the context of 1844. And there are still some churches today. But most of them, from this time, they are very small. Some have disappeared, some are very, very small. But the Adventist church has developed a tremendous power. And I must say that it is really, it is really amazing to see how the Adventist church has an impact until today in society. Of course, regarding its mission, regarding the faith we are, we are proclaiming, regarding also the, the message we share with other people. So prophecy has determined our identity as an Adventist church, and it is still doing it. Why do I emphasize this so much? Because today there are a lot of question marks. Um, I will quote one theology professor, not from one of our schools, because I don't want to offend anybody, but from a Lutheran. In fact, from a state university in Germany, but with Lutheran theology. And he said, he has published in a book that he doesn't believe that Jesus existed at all. So he doesn't believe in, God, in Jesus, he doesn't believe in God. And so people asked him, well, but how can you teach theology? And so he said, well, you don't need to believe in God and in Jesus to teach theology. Now, my dear friends, I don't know if you would choose to go to such a professor to teach you about God. What can they teach you about God? But you see, this is what is in the air. What is the so-called zeitgeist, the, the opinion of the day in our world. And this is why it's so important that we focus and we ask ourselves, who are we? What is our identity? And where does our identity come from? And this will also show you why prophecy is so important in the Adventist church and for the Adventist church. So in the book of Daniel, we find some aspects determining identity, defining identity. In search of who we are, Daniel reveals amazing aspects of identity. And we will have a look into some of them during this afternoon. The, the book of Daniel tells us who we are, a question of identity, how we are. It addresses also lifestyle questions and where we are heading on, prophetic elements. Daniel presents aspects of identity. Let's look at one of these elements, faithfulness. Daniel chapter 1. Do you remember what we read in Daniel chapter 1? No dream yet. 
Yes, please. Right, right. Captivity. So Daniel and his friends, in fact, royal people, high society in, in Israel, they arrive to be servants in Babylon. They are prisoners. Of course, servants also in the high society, but still servants. They cannot decide for themselves. And we are also servants today. I mean, even if we have money, we earn money, we get a salary, we pay. But we pay and we need to serve ourselves. Isn't it like this? You go to the airport and you do self-checking, but you pay for this. We serve ourselves. Okay, but it's another question. So Daniel and his friends, they went to Babylon. And they were invited to participate in the high society of Babylon. And this was an honor, of course. I mean, if you come from a country like whatever, let's say Switzerland, and somebody invites you to go to the United States and serve at the White House, yeah, this would be an honor, an honor because it's a larger country, it's a, has, it's a more famous country, and this would be an honor. But Daniel says, well, before I can accept, I need to, tell, to clarify something. And he says, he talks with the person responsible for this and says, look, we appreciate very much what you are doing, but, but, please, we need a special diet. Now you see the king in Babylon, he decided what they should eat, what they should drink, what, how they should behave, what, how they should be educated. He decided everything because he was the king. And if somebody would have the courage to do differently, he would not be fired, he would be killed. Now, do you understand? It's easy to be faithful when there are no consequences. I mean, if I take a red, um, let's say, if I, if I buy red shoes or black shoes, makes not big, big difference. I mean, it's shoes. But if I accept the diet of the king and I live, or if I don't accept the diet of the king and I die, I mean, this is not an easy decision. And here it's about faithfulness. Daniel and his friends, they decide to take the risk. And this is really a very, very important issue. Faithful to God's cause, consequent according to God's word, and taking the risk. In Daniel chapter 1, we have here the experience that Daniel and his friends decide to remain faithful to God. Now the question, is this today still an important thing? Some of you might be surprised that I ask this question, but it's not, it's not an outplaced question. Because you see today, 
the media tries to make us understand that you can combine all kinds of lifestyles. During the day, you can work in an honorable office, and during the night, you can work as a prostitute or whatever, and it's fine, they say. They don't show the other part, the other side of the life, of a, of a lost life. But faithfulness, it's not possible to be unfaithful to God and expect to grow spiritually in faith. So Daniel and his friends, they decide to, be, to stay faithful to God. A second element, obedience. Daniel chapter 3. Who remembers what happens here in Daniel chapter 3? Yes, please. The furnace. The three. The three. The three friends of Daniel. It's interesting that Daniel is not there. Maybe he knew about the things. Maybe he has got a permit from the king to stay home. Maybe. We don't know. And this is why we cannot say what happened with Daniel. But his friends were there. And I must say that here, it's a very important lesson we learn here from this part of Daniel. No honor, no threat can determine the faithful to stop being obedient to God. Sometimes it's not easy. And I must say, it's very different how people react in such situation. A few months ago, a young lady came to me from Central Europe. She's an Adventist, and she is studying at the university. She is studying music. And she said at her university, usually they have courses Monday to Friday. But sometimes exams are on Sabbath. And she said a certain exam, in order to finish her studies, this exam was on Sabbath. So she went to the professor to say, can you do somehow that, because I cannot come on Sabbath. And the professor said, no way. So she went to the, to the president of the university. Is, it, is there any possibility to change this exam or that I may make it later or however? No way. So she went to the court. No way. Nobody wanted to give her an opportunity to take her exam in a democratic Central European country. And then she called me and said, what should I do? And I said, well, it's a very difficult situation. But nothing is impossible to God. So finally, we looked in diff into different options. And then she decided to change the university. She went to another part of the country where she had to learn another language. But she took the pain. She took the sacrifice. 
because she wanted to be obedient to God. I'm glad to know that today there are Adventists who are faithful to God, who take the risk and say, God will help us. Then there's a third element in the book of Daniel. We will come back on the different chapters. This is just to give you a little bit, um, how to say, an overview about the different, different aspects that we find in the Bible. So trust in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Who remembers what is written in Daniel chapter 6? Yeah? What do we read in Daniel chapter 6? The lion's den. It's an important element. And let me here make here a little, a little break. Sometimes you might read in some books or on some, some internet websites, well, the fairy tale of the lion's den. But it's not so. Just a few weeks ago, Brother Costa knows it, we were in Israel. And I must say, this visit encouraged me so much because I was on the GRI bus and we have seen some archaeological sites that were ex really, really extremely good. We went to Azekah. Maybe you don't re uh, remember the name, but this was a city close to the area where David was uh, fighting with Goliath. And then we went there and saw the archaeological site of Azekah. And archaeologists have discovered this was the ancient Azekah. And then an, some, uh, an archaeologist who was with us, a very renowned archaeologist, Michael Hazel, you might know him, he told us, look, there, not far away, is the city of Gat. Archaeologists have discovered and defined or determined this is the ancient Gat, what the Bible speaks of. And then he said, look, and this, in this part, is Sukkot, which is mentioned in the Bible. This has been excavated by archaeologists, and they, de they defined it, yes, this is the ancient Sukkot. And then he said, look, Something which is quite new because some students from Andrews have uh, digged there. The Bible speaks of a city where there's no name. It says the city with the two doors. Now, in ancient time, except Jerusalem, the cities had only one door because the door was the critical element. I mean, through the door, also enemies could go into the city. So they had only one door. But this city had two doors. And it's interesting that they have, were looking for the city with two doors, and, and finally they discovered this city and have excavated the city. Now, there we have all these ancient locations mentioned in the Bible, and now today all renowned archaeologists accept that these are the ancient cities. And there's also this, this uh, a creek which might have been, or well, at least the valley is the valley where David and Goliath were there, but also this creek from where he took the five stones. But the interesting thing is that for many, many years, 
critics of the Bible have always brought in some, some um, questions, some doubts about the Bible. Well, the Bible is not a historic book. I mean, the Bible might have some historical errors, but okay, uh, it's nice. It's interesting. And this was confirmed also by non-Adventist guides there. Year by year, archaeologists discover new things, and the new things confirm the Bible. In the mid-19th century, people said, well, until the mid-19th century, 19th century uh, the people said, well, the Bible speaks about Belshazzar, but he never existed. It's, it's, it's a um, fantastic name. But then they discovered on some tablets the name of Belshazzar. They said, oh, okay, okay, they have discovered it. But you see, the Bible speaks about the Hittites. This was a big, a big nation, and, we, and it, it never existed. I mean, the nation existed. The problem was it was not discovered. Until 1947, with the Stone of Rosetta, they discovered also the Hittite, uh, um, well, characters and writings, and then they discovered it was. And so it's the same. What do I want to say? When we read the book of, ba of Daniel, I am convinced, and this is, of course, uh, a testimony, I am convinced that what we read in the Bible is what God has revealed to his servant. And this is why I take it seriously what is there. Because whatever has been written, you remember the words of Paul in, the second, in second Timothy, whatever has been written has been written to, to teach us. So the area of trust in the Bible. Daniel continues his lifestyle of faithfulness and obedience, trusting God to protect him, even from the, in the lion's den. Daniel could have closed the windows. And somebody asked me, just recently, asked me, well, I don't understand why Daniel didn't, didn't close the windows, at least the windows, that the people don't hear him praying. But you see, Daniel, it was something different. Here it was a test of trust in God. I mean, was his God strong enough to protect him even in the lion's den or not? And Daniel trusted God. So Daniel, Daniel did, not, did not go to uncalculated risk. Daniel simply trusted God because he knew God. Then we have the element of integrity. Integrity in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. Who remembers what do we read in chapter 5? About? Handwriting on the wall. And do you remember what the king tells Daniel at the end? Well, Daniel, you are the best. You have explained what it means to us. Now you, we will honor you. Look, you should be, get the, the uh, um, very, uh, very expensive clothing so that everybody knows you are the most honored person in my kingdom. And you will get this and that and that. And then they say, thank you. I don't need it. Didn't you get the message? It's over. It's finished. The king did not get the message. But Daniel, he was integral. 
And just the next chapter, chapter 6, people were looking into his life, into every corner of his life, to find something against him, and they didn't find anything. Now, did you reflect why this was this way? Because Daniel put his whole life in the hands of God. And as he was in public, he was in private. As he, was, as he was with one person, he was with the other person. He was the same. He didn't have two or three or five faces. He was the same before God and before people. So integrity is very important. No honors necessary. Daniel is interested in accomplishing his mission, not in gaining personal and professional favors. And then we come to the prophecy part. Now you see, then the book of Daniel is made of two parts. The first six chapters where we have real history from the life of Daniel and the kings of Babylon. And this part is written in Aramaic. And then we have the prophetic part from chapter 7, which is written in Hebrew. And this is why some scientists say, oh, there have been two authors writing the book of Daniel. And what we have in the book of Daniel, that is not real Daniel. I believe it's real Daniel because I also use different languages. And if you look into my notes, sometimes I, I write German and then English, and then uh, there are some French notes, because, I mean, it depends on how the ideas are coming. So these are not different, different writers, because it's different uh, languages. And this is the only argument they really use as an argument. Maybe they also say, because this is historic and this is prophetic, but it also doesn't is not an argument for myself. So it's the prophetic part of Daniel, which starts, of course, in Daniel 2, and some of you mentioned the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's interesting. Because of his closeness to God, Daniel is able to read God's intentions for the present and the future. Do you believe that the gift of prophecy is still a valid gift today. But you see, in order that God might be able to use this gift of prophecy to communicate, he would need people like Daniel to be so close to God that nothing will interfere because for God it's important that what he says will arrive at the listener, at the reader, at the, at the people to whom he addresses. So prophecy is another very important element in the book of Daniel. And then we come to chapter 9. Do you remember what Daniel does, does in chapter 9? Sorry? Well, it has something to do, but what is he doing at the beginning? I mean, he's praying, yes. He is praying and fasting because he is concerned about the present and the future of his people. 
I mean, he read in the, in the book of Jeremiah and the other prophets that after 70 years, the people of Israel would return to the promised land. The captivity will be over. And he started to pray, to understand. God revealed him something about 2,300 nights and days. And then, of course, he started to pray. And it took some time. He didn't pray five minutes. He didn't pray two hours. He didn't pray. He, he prayed some time until the angel could come to him and uh, give him the answer. So, powerful prayer, moving mountains and kings. And Daniel is praying for God and his people Israel. We will come back to the content of chapter 9, but I think it's important. And then also uh, another element, it's confession, repentance, and commitment. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, we have sinned. He confesses. And then he says, forgive your people. And please, make your promises true. He includes himself in the need for forgiveness and salvation. Then we have another element. It's Christology in the book of Daniel. I mean, sometimes people try to blame us to say, well, you are so much in the prophecies that you forget Christ. I mean, you need Christ, Christ's righteousness, and that's it. No more. No more. It's true. We need Christ and no more. But having Christ has a consequence in our life. How does it look in, in detail? So Christology is also in the prophetic book of Daniel. The problem with sin will be solved. Iniquity will have an end, and God has already an established schedule for solving the problem of sin in in the world. Of course, then we have the um, element of eschatology, which means the last things. Eschatology, the last things, or the, the knowledge of the, yeah, of the last things, the, the time before Christ will return. And here in Daniel 12, uh, it's mentioned, seal the book until the time of the end. So God reveals end-time scenarios, and Daniel writes it down. Daniel is an eschatological prophet because he doesn't speak only of his time. He speaks also for the future, but I will come back to it. And uh, last point, Daniel speaks also of the remnant because he speaks something about people, specific people, in the last three chapters, and especially in chapter 12, he speaks about people, about knowledge, faithfulness, and perseverance, which are still counting in the eyes of God. So we see that here are a lot of elements of uh, identity in the book of Daniel. Of course, seeing the Adventist history, we have um, a whole... Um, development, or let me say expansion of this basic idea. In 1844, of course, prayer and Bible study has led them to understand the book of Daniel, the importance, and of course the book of Revelation, but we speak today about Daniel. 1863, um, when the 
the formal organization of the church was established, they continued to do the same. They could continue to pray. They continued to study. And, of course, uh, they um, uh, also experienced tremendous change. When the message, the health message came in, when they started to print, when they started to expand, when they started to understand that there's still a mission to be done around the world, and then G.N. Andrews was sent to, to Europe and so on. And by the way, those who are visiting Collonge in France, near to Geneva, one day, don't miss to visit the library there and to ask for the library of G.N. Andrews. We have the whole library of G.N. Andrews in the basement of the library, 700 books. But I mean, not, not $2 books. I mean, they are really um, old Bibles from the first printing and, and other things he had there. He was really a very, very good scholar. So I must say I have such a respect for our pioneers because they, they knew much more than we know today. So just, this was just a, a, little, a little information for you um, about um, G.N. Andrews' um, library in Collonge. Then, of course, 1888, uh, which marks a special moment in the life of the church when um, the um, focus was brought again stronger on Christ. I mean, Christ was always in the belief of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but it was again brought stronger in. And then, of course, the uh, passing of time until today, we can discover today that the Adventist church has remained basically based on the Bible and on the same foundation. Of course, knowledge has increased, and especially, I mean, if you think in the 70s and 80s, the challenges with uh, uh, Desmond Ford and, and others, uh, they have only helped the church to define more clear what we believe, but it didn't bring a change in the belief of the church. So we spoke about the pioneers, that for them it was very important to study the Bible. For them, they discovered that they lived in a prophetic time, that it was a prophetic church, and that they, we have a prophetic message. And this remained until now. I would like to see in this, this, um, two, these two parts of the book of Daniel. I would like to um, define it in two concepts. One, the faithfulness concept in the historic part, where we have faithful principles or principles of faithfulness. Then we have uh, faithful personality describing people who remained faithful to God. And even Nebuchadnezzar, when he went crazy, when he came back, when he started to praise God, to, to have moments in his life when he was faithful to God. And then also um, the, a faithful lifestyle. Because, I mean, belief in God is not a theory. It has always to do with life. And then the second part of the book, the prophetic part, where we have the pro prophetic concept of the book of Daniel. So the prophetic community 
And here, it's not the personal identity anymore. It's the, the identity of the community. So prophetic community, prophetic worship, and prophetic mission of the church. But we will develop this more. I like Daniel. Why do I like Daniel? Because in Daniel, we read only positive things. Have you read one sin of Daniel mentioned there? Although he also was a sinner because Jesus says nobody is without sin. This is why he came. But Daniel was really an example. There's no sin of Daniel. Do you remember another person in the Bible? I mean, David, we know that there are also some negative things about him. About Moses, we know some negative things about him. But Daniel, only positive. Is there any other, any other person in the Bible where there's only positive things about him? Henoch? Joseph. Yes, Joseph. Yeah, it's interesting. These are people who really went very, very closely with God. So I like Daniel because he's a person who really, really uh, walks very closely to God. He is faithful no matter what risk. He identifies with the sinfulness of his people and asks for God's forgiveness. And he's trustworthy, a trustworthy messenger, passing on the prophecy as God has revealed it to him. And he draws out... Uh, attention again and again to eternity. He draws our attention um, again and again to eternity. So this is why I like, like Daniel so much. Now, the first part of Daniel, we could see, say in large, I mean, of course, there are also like chapter 2, which is also a very part of chapter 2 is prophetic, part of it is historic, but um, um, I, would, I would say that the first part, the historic part, speaks a lot about personal identity. And at the beginning, I gave you some examples showing that it's important to reflect what makes an Adventist. Sometimes I am asked, what does, when is a person an Adventist? When the person keeps the Sabbath? Is a person an Adventist when the person pays the tithe? When is a person an Adventist? What do you believe? Hmm? Okay, maybe we will find out at the end. So this historic part of Daniel teaches us how to live, how to apply, apply faith in our daily life, and how to manage problems in life. In fact, how to define our personal identity. One element we find, and we mentioned chapter one from Daniel, is the principles of the remnant. Not to touch unholy things, not to eat, not to drink, but to take the risk. And finally, to enjoy God's miracle. Yeah. It's interesting that Daniel says in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested to the prince of, of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. 
Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking uh, than the children which are of your sort? Then shall he make me endanger my head to the king. So he had a discussion. But finally, the head of the eunuchs, he accepts and says, okay, let's try it. Ten days. Ten days is not a long time. But it was enough to give him as a view of the principles of this young man. Remnant principles. To stay faithful. To be correct. To be honest. So again, the question, what makes an Adventist? It's interesting that in some countries, Adventists have a certain image. I remember in one communist country, when people heard Adventists, oh, this is an Adventist. These are honest people. Is this the image in your country? Would be nice. So, remnant principles. It's important to reflect about it. What are the principles who make us Adventists? I mean, if we take the Ten Commandments seriously, then of course we have some life principles. When it comes to relationship to other people, to relationship to the other gender, when it comes to relationship to the, to the um, belongings of other people, when it comes to... So we have certain principles. So the book of Daniel gives us an idea about principles that create our identity as the remnant people of God in the end time. And of course, during all history, as the people of God. And then we have remnant behavior. Daniel chapter 2. It's interesting. You remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this, had this dream, and then he discovered that his people could not explain his dream. I mean, the problem was he has forgotten the dream. And he says, all should be killed. And Daniel says, why, why do you want to kill all people? I mean, on what planet was Daniel? I don't know. But he didn't know about this. And so he asked, why should these people be killed? And then he was given the answer, well, because the people cannot explain the, the um, dream. Well, what, what is so difficult? What's the dream? Well, that's a problem. The king doesn't know what he has dreamed. Oh, but that's also not a problem. What do you say? Well, I think it's possible to solve it. Can I go to the king? Now, this was not an easy thing. You don't go just to a king who is in rage. But he went in. And he says, 
Majesty, can you give me some time? I need time. Now, what was, what was the, the um, problem the king had with his wise people? He said, ah, you want to get some time so that you make some arrangements and you discuss among you and then that you lie to me all together the same thing. And Daniel comes in and said, says, king, I need time. And the king says, you have the time. What, what's the difference? So you see, a child of God, a genuine child of God, has an identity that is specific and visible. So remnant behavior. He goes to his friends and starts praying. He doesn't start to, to search the whole internet. I mean, they didn't have it at that time, but they had libraries. He goes and prays and searches his God because he knows God can help. He has courage. He shows acceptance and natural authority. He finds acceptance and he shows natural authority. In fact, at the end, when God reveals him the, the dream of, of the king, he is thankful for the privilege that he can be the messenger of God for Nebuchadnezzar. Then we have a hint for remnant ethics in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. What is the, the remnant ethics? How should remnant people behave? Trust in God, obedience to God's law, witnessing anywhere. And of course, consequent life. Enjoying the conviction our God can. There was one young man. He went to school, and um, at that time, schools were from Monday to Saturday. And because he never went to school on Saturday, sometimes he had some difficulties. Some grades were a little bit lower as he should have received. But this was not a problem because he was taught at home in his family and also at the, at the church that it's more important that we have good grades with God than anywhere else. But then, when he was in the fifth grade, the leaders of the school decided, well, one certain course should be only on Sabbath. And this was a one-hour course. And then, of course, the young man asked, can you change or can I give a special exam on it or something to get a grade because I need to pass to the next class? And they said, no. The parents tried. Teacher said, no, no possibility. So this young man, only in the fifth grade, had to repeat the class, only because calligraphy was only on Sabbath. And this young man repeated the class. And the next year, he had only A grades. Everything was A, 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 A. And I mean, it was boring because, but 
nothing to do. He has lost a full year only because one course, calligraphy, was on Sabbath. And the next year, the calligraphy was not anymore in, uh, taught. So it was not there anymore, but he had to repeat the class. So it went on. Every year he had difficulties until he reached the um, university level. So the final exam was also started with Sabbath, so he had to do the next session of exams two months later, but he passed well and everything went well. And this young man was asked, what has determined him to stay fast, to stay strong with God's commandment of the Sabbath? Because he was invited, he was, he was told, look, come just one hour on Sabbath, you write your exam, and you have passed. That's it. But this young man said, well, I have read in the book of Daniel that the three friends of Daniel said, our God can um, um, deliver us, liberate us from your hand. And if he will not do it, we would not bow down. God can. If he does it or not, that's not our problem. God can. We know he can. And we will stay faithful. And this determined this young man to stay faithful to God. After this, he went to the seminary. He came two months later, and the director said, oh, you will start next year. No, no, I would like to start this year. Oh, but it's already half the, the quarter is done, so how will you do it? No problem. Okay, they accepted. So he won one year. Then when he did his MA, instead of two years, which did most of them, he did it in one year. So God, God has given him two years back for this one year. Because God is good and God can help. So it's the question of remnant ethics. By the way, this man is me. It was my experience. What is the ethics? We are not obedient to God only in good times when we have no risk. We are obedient to God anytime because God takes care of the risks. And then, the remnant worship. Of course, in Daniel 3, the friends of Daniel, they knew there's only one God and there's only one op option of worship. And they knew that worship is a testimony. They knew that worship means faithfulness. And they knew that worship means to honor God. And in the end, they make this happy experience of deliverance from the furnace, from the fire, in the fire, and they are delivered. Worship is more than just a few songs. And I think it's not Adventist identity to fight about worship styles and about worship things. I think it's Adventist identity to kneel down, study the Bible, and ask God, dear God, how can we express best the faith you have given us in the Holy Scriptures. Then, the remnant mission, of course, Daniel 4 and 5. It's interesting that in 
difficult situations, Daniel brings the message, but he calls the people back. Why would have God warned Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? Because he wanted to give them a chance, a second chance. Daniel is an agent of God, and he says that we are agents of God in any place. So why not enjoying, warning people, giving them another chance to come to God and to uh, be saved? And then, of course, the remnant hope. It's the element of hope. I mean, we speak a lot of hope about hope in the Adventist church, but this is more than just having hope every day. This is a hope that has also an eschatological uh, dimension. Three friends, plenty of hope, consequence and deliverance, and of course, one statement with total hope, giving God a chance to work. It pays to trust God. We see it in the, in the historic part of Daniel, but we find it also in the prophetic part of Daniel. Of course, what's the question? What's the consequence of it? It takes courage to be faithful, but it is the only way to be a living witness of God's grace. This was the part speaking about personal identity. Now let's come to the question, what makes an Adventist? Is it when we pay tithe that we are an Adventist? Is it when we have been baptized in an Adventist baptistry that we are an Adventist? Is it what is when, what makes us an Adventist? What would you say? I hope you are not asleep. Sorry? Yes, faithful relation with God, which is very broad. Yeah. Yes. So, you see, this is another element that is very important for us. I told you, I will not, I will not give just the classical explanations for what, what is the, the gold, the golden head, and so on. I mean, if somebody says, okay, we would like to hear this, I can give it to you. But uh, I, I want to give you some, some side information so that you get a broader picture of the things. You see, the Hebrew thinking is different from the Greek one. We, in... Western Europe and the Western world, even the United States, we are trained in the schools in Greek way of thinking. This means analytic thinking. It's, for example, if I say, um, what, what should I say? If I say, um, this, is, this, is, um, this device is, has the color silver, then it cannot be red or blue or whatever. But in the Hebrew thinking, which is not analytical, but synthetical, every element is like a piece of a mosaic, of a puzzle. So if, if in, in the Hebrew concept somebody says, well, this device has the color silver, and 
In another set text uh, context, maybe two minutes later, he says, this device is black. This is not a contradiction. Because, because it is different elements of a mosaic, of a total. So in the Bible, it's the same. Jesus says, if you have love for me, this is a point of identity. Now, let me make a test. What is written in John 17, 17 to 21? Let them be one, as you are in me and I am in you, that the world might know that you have sent me. Now, the element of identity here is unity. Now, what is it? Is it love or is it unity? Or is it both? You understand? So in order to understand the word of God, we need to look for the whole picture. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning. We look now, we focus in a specific way on Daniel, but, but we need to put it also in the larger context of the whole Bible. Of course, Daniel and Revelation are specific uh, prophetic books, but to put it also in the whole context of the Bible. And uh, uh, this is why the question is, what makes the Adventist identity? We cannot say only one element. In fact, if you want to know it, it is the total context. The whole picture shown by the Bible. What makes our identity? Because if we keep the Sabbath, Jews are keeping the Sabbath. If we have love for each other, Baptist uh, Christians, they have also love for each other. But nobody has the whole context as we have it. So you understand how important it is. And we will make a short break. And after this, then we will come to the prophetic part of Daniel. But um, I think it goes until 5 o'clock, is it? Right, yeah? Okay. And... Um, um, after the break, then I will deal with the prophetic part of Daniel, and then you will see that uh, it is, on the one hand, the personal identity, but on the other hand, there's also the corporate identity of the community, what makes us as Adventists. So I would say uh, 10 minutes of break, and then we continue here. I think it's important that you move a little bit, and then we will continue with the uh, following um, passage. Okay, I think that we can continue. At least with the remnant. Yeah, there are some more outside who will come then. Of course, in the first, in the first part of, um, of the book of Daniel, we have focused on elements determining personal identity. What do I mean with personal identity? I mean, sometimes we belong to a church, but the question is, how do I stand before God? 
because it doesn't mean if somebody is a Seventh-day Adventist member, it doesn't mean that he is also on the list in the heavenly books. Automatically. Because each one has to stand before God. So this is the question of personal identity. And the question is, what is my personal Christian Adventist identity? I say it deliberately, Christian Adventist identity, because sometimes we see that people say, oh, we are all Christians. Well, but we are a specific people. We are a prophetic people, and therefore Adventist. Christian Adventist identity. So we have dealt with elements from here, and I, I have just tackled it a little bit. I hope that when you will return home, that you will take some time and reflect more on it, that you will pray about it, that God will help you to find not only the book of Daniel, but in the whole Bible, to find elements, again and again, elements that define the identity of people following Christ. Now we come to the part, the prophetic part, and here we would like to deal with the question of corporate identity. What does it mean, corporate identity? The question, what is the identity of the Adventist church? There are more than 1,000 Christian denominations. So the question is, why do we need the Adventist church? Or what is different in the Adventist church? When people ask you, Adventist, what is this? So what do you, do you tell them? Well, we believe in Christ. Oh, then that's most of the Christians. Oh, we try to be kind people. Well, this seems to be at least the wish of most of the Christians. So what do you say? And sometimes people step in and say, oh, these are the people who don't eat pork. And these are the people who have rest on Sabbath instead of Sunday, Saturday in lock of, in, instead of Sunday. So you see, they tell about the distinctive elements of identity. But the question is still, what is our corporate identity? Who are we? And this discussion comes up sometimes in the church. It comes up uh, in Sabbath school classes, it comes up when there are theological discussions in the church, and it comes up when we speak about mission, about outreach, it comes up when we speak about worship styles. When we... So here's the question, who are we as a church? What is our corporate identity? The prophetic part of Daniel helps us a little bit to have uh, to understand on how to have spiritual fellowship, because it's about fellowship. How to worship the true God, because it's about the true God. And how to be ambassadors of salvation, what to share with others. In fact, how to define, it's an F, corporate identity. So first it's a question of prophetic history. Now, coming back to chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we read, and um, if we look at the uh, start of Daniel chapter 2, well, I think it's easier like this. 
Then we read, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded, and so on. And then we have the dream, and in the end, when Daniel comes in, he speaks about the explanation of the dream. And then he says, verse 36, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, I must say I am very thankful to God that God has determined Daniel to write the dream, but also to write the explanation for the dream. Because otherwise we could have very wild fantasy about what the dream means. But here it's very clear. Verse 37. You, O king, you are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given to you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the folds of the heaven have, has he given into your hand and has made you ruler over the, them all. You are the head of gold. Yes? Before he has described, there was a statue, head of gold, um, the breast of silver, then uh, brass, and then iron, and iron with clay mixed. And he says, you are the head of gold. Now, we could say here, of course, this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And then the next one, silver, might be the next king in the Babylonian Empire. But the explanation is here very clear. He says, you are the head of gold. And then verse 39, and after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So it's not another king, it's another kingdom. And then a third one and a fourth one. So here, the book of Daniel gives us an insight, an interpretation of history. And it is a prophetic interpretation of history, so it is prophetic history. Because history in the Bible is always done from a specific perspective. Biblical history is done from the perspective of salvation of man. It's about redemption. You see, maybe you have also been asked, well, why does the Bible say nothing about the Chinese Empire and about the Incas? Because God speaks only about the things that are directly related to his plan of salvation. This is prophetic history. But still, it's accurate history. But it's prophetic history. So this is an important aspect when it comes to um, corporate identity. We believe that our church is not one among many. This is the ecumenical idea, and you might hear it here and there in Europe. Well, it's important that we believe in God and in Jesus Christ, 
And it doesn't matter if you are Adventist or Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever you are, even Muslim or Buddhist or Hinduist, everybody believes in God. It's the same God, just different names. If it would have been the same God, the three friends of Daniel would have boned down. But it was not the same God. So it's not the same God. You understand? <coughs> Prophetic history tells us that every detail is important. And this is how the Adventist church is defined. In the Adventist church believes that God had a time when the people of Israel were the chosen people. And then Adventists believe that in the New Covenant, this has been expanded. And we read in the book of Acts, and David Asherick has presented it in a marvelous way, that God has revealed to the apostles that also the heaven can be partakers of God's blessings. You understand, this is Adventist uh, understanding of history. And this is how Adventist identity is defined. And at the end of the prophetic period, and this is still history, there comes an end-time people of God, the remnant church. Now, this is not something, uh, how to say, uh, evaporating. This is something very real. You understand why the prophetic understanding of history is so important for Adventist identity? Because if we stay with the Bible here, then of course 1844 makes sense, and then the remnant church, as the Adventists believe about their church, then it makes sense. It has a mission in the end time. Okay, the next point. Um, well, we mentioned prophetic history, and here also uh, about that it ends, in fact, with the kingdom of God. And this is very important. Uh, I told you that prophetic history always is oriented towards, towards salvation, redemption. So the four kingdoms are important to understand that in the development of human history, always at the end, we have the hope and the perspective of God's kingdom established on this earth, of course, after uh, the event of the second coming and the transformation of everything. Then we have the element of prophetic future. Daniel chapters 2, 7, and 8. And it's very interesting to see these chapters parallel. Usually we see books as a certain chronology. But here, Daniel chapters two, chapter, chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, they, by content, they need to be seen parallel. And now let's have a look. We started here, and we have read in chapter 2, uh, you, king, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. And then it comes the breast of silver, then um, the rest of uh, brass and the feet, the legs and the feet of um, uh, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. 
Now in chapter 7, if we go to chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, then we read it's a little bit different. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Now here Daniel explains exactly how God has led him to deal with the things God has revealed to him. God has given him dreams, revelation. I mean, it was not dream like we dream when we eat too much in the evening. It was a divine revelation. And he says, God has given me a dream. I have written down the dream. And then he says, and I told the sum of the matters. So he makes a conclusion, a summary, an explanation. And now let's see what he sees. What was his dream? In my vision, verse 2, by night, and uh, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens drove upon the grand, uh, great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse, one from the other. The first was like a lion. The second was like a bear, the third like a leopard, the fourth like a terrible beast, we say like a dragon, and then, of course, this beast has different horns, and then was a horn, and so on. And then, at the end, after 2,300 years, uh, evenings, no, this is in uh, chapter 8, then at the end, we see God's kingdom again. Because we see, let, let us see here, um, there were the beasts, and Daniel, yes, verse 14, and 13, and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which, uh, that which shall not be destroyed. So, again, there are the kingdoms in earthly history, in, in history of mankind, and at the end is the kingdom of God, which will not be gone away anymore, which remains for eternity. And this we say, see in Daniel chapter 7. Now in Daniel chapter 8, it changes a little bit. In Daniel chapter 8, we read, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, even unto me, Daniel. After that, which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at, the Shush, uh, at Shushan, in the palace which is the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ulai. Then I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, there was, stood before the river a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high. One was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that the beasts might stand before, no beasts might stand before him. Now, it's interesting that Daniel 
has a vision. And this is in the last part of the Babylonian Empire. It's no need anymore to define the Babylonian Empire. And this is why Daniel begins with the Medo-Persian Empire. So in his third vision, because the time has passed, the Babylonian Empire was one of the most brilliant ones, but it was short. The next empire, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, was not so brilliant, but it lasted longer. And, of course, the, Greece, the Greek one and the, the Roman Empire lasted the longest from, from these empires. So we see here in the parallel, we understand that God gives different aspects of the same line of history. In the first part, we have outward definitions. Gold, this is being rich. Silver, still rich, but not so rich. Brass, not so much. And iron, hard, but not so rich. You understand? But then it comes to the, to the character of the beasts. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the terrible beast. And then it comes further. It comes to details. Look, we have read about the ram. The ram has two horns. And one horn is higher than the other. But the higher horn comes later. Now from history we know that there were the Medians and the Persians. And the ones who came later, they made the kings. And they were, had more authority than the others. But then it comes to the goat. The goat that has one horn. And goes so fast that it doesn't even tackle the, the, the earth. But because God has revealed Daniel, and Daniel has explained that these different elements of vision. They represent kingdoms. By parallel, we can see, okay, this is also about kingdom. And this is why Adventists have interpreted it as the Greek empire. Now, let me give you another detail, which maybe you don't hear every day. It's about, again, about the book, the, the book of Daniel. Now, some people try to interpret these things all as just in the time of Daniel. They try to, to say, well, um, we don't know if, if Daniel really lived, but okay, there might be something in this time of Daniel. And some others say, well, we don't believe that the book of Daniel has been written in the time of Daniel. We think that in the time of the Romans, 150, 140 before Christ, some people might have invented the book of Daniel. The only problem is that in the meantime, we know that in the time of Daniel, there was accurate knowledge about the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire that this accurate knowledge has got lost until it has been discovered now with the libraries from Assyria and from Babylon. 
So scientists, even non-believing scientists, they admit that in the time of the Romans, in the second century before Christ, some of the specifics mentioned by Daniel in, his, in the book were simply not known. So it cannot be that the book of Daniel has been written in the second century before Christ. Just as a little detail. Why do I tell it to you? Because this is again a very encouraging detail about the book of Daniel. That God is trustworthy and his word is really trustworthy. So when God speaks in a prophetic way about the future. It is not without purpose. God has always a purpose. His purpose is to save people, to redeem people, and to help them reach everlasting life. So I think that it's important for us to have also a look to this aspect of the prophecy. Not only to look exactly what are the years and how do we have to explain it, but to look at the identity aspect. What does God want to say with this? He says that in all times he has a people he wants to bring to his kingdom, to stay in this everlasting kingdom he will establish at the end of time. And then, of course, we have the element of prophetic humanity. Again, the chapters 2, 7, 8, and 9. It speaks about kingdoms, about people, about earthly history, human history, but always going into a certain direction. God has an intelligent plan on how to save humanity. And the, the wild powers on earth end up always into nothing. But what remains is the kingdom of God. So if we come to Daniel chapter 9, we will see this. Daniel chapter 9 is very interesting because at the beginning we read that in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, on the seed of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel was a student of prophecy. He was not only a prophet receiving prophecy, he was also a student of prophecy. He studied the prophets, Jeremiah and the others, very closely. And he understood, well, now it's time that Jerusalem should be built again. And he starts to pray and says, Lord, what happens? We can change nothing. They are stronger than we are. We are spread about around the world. We can do nothing. So you need to help us. It's interesting how Daniel starts to influence his history by prayer. And this is an element of Adventist corporate identity. We believe that God has given his chosen church a mission in this world. 
that he has given us the mission to prepare humanity for the return of Christ. So we should, for this reason, take the power of prayer very seriously. And I must say, in the last months, I have understood much more than I have understood in the last 20 years how important prayer is. Not prayer, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the good meal, goodbye. But to have really, real, real, fervent, deep prayer with God. And if you start, and when you go home, and share two, three, five people around you, and start praying at least once or twice a week, to search the face of God and to say, God, we have a church that has had no baptism for the last five years. But Lord, we know you can do something. And we ask you, change us and change the church and change the people in this, in this town or village and do something because we believe that Jesus will come soon. You understand? If we study the prophecy, it always has to do with our practical life. It's not only theory. An Adventist is not somebody who in theory believes that Jesus is saving him. An Adventist is not somebody who in theory believes that the 2,300 years and in 1844. An Adventist is not one who in theory believes that, well, um, there will be a, th a millennium or whatever. A Seventh-day Adventist is who always put this into practice into his own life. Okay, so the prophetic aspect of humanity. God sees humanity different as non-believers or as secularized people. So Daniel, even in chapter 9, expresses it. He has, he has started to pray. And then he waited three weeks. Because the angel, as he started to pray, the angel started to come. But the angel had to work with the heart of the king. And the king resisted. One day, two days, two days, three days, three weeks. And then the angel was able to come. You understand? I mean, sometimes it can be that we pray for two years, for five years, and nothing happens. And then suddenly the mother or the father or the child or whoever comes back to church. Yeah? You understand? This has to do with Adventist identity. I mean, we are not speaking here about theory and theoretical theology. We are speaking about our life. Okay, the next point Prophetic ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the teaching about the church, the understanding of the church, prophetic understanding of the church. This is just a picture from one of the general conference sessions. But um, uh, in the chapters 9 to 12, it speaks that God cares about, for his church. God answers prayers. God offers forgiveness. God makes salvation real in our lives. And God sends his son. It's interesting that here, especially in chapter 9, we read then there will be 
a certain time, especially in, at the end of the, of the chapter. We read here. Um, yes, verse 25. Daniel 9:25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks. And then three score two weeks, this makes 62 weeks, the streets may, shall be built again and the wall and even in troublous time. After the 62 weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the out overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, here we read about how God deals with the church. I mean, the church in um, an extensive way, the old Israel and then the new Israel, it's, we read here that there will be a certain time until the Messiah comes. And it says in the middle of the week, of the 17th week, there shall happen something. And this has happened with the death, the crucifixion, and the raising of Jesus Christ. Prophetic ecclesiology always has the purpose of redemption. So we cannot speak about church as a club. We cannot deal with the church as a club. We cannot tell people, okay, if you like to come to church, no matter what you believe, just become a member of the church. I can baptize you, that's fine. No, it doesn't work. Because the prophetic understanding of God's church has a certain frame. It is about salvation from sin, not into sin, not in their sins, but from sin to deliverance and to eternal life. So this is very important here, that in the middle of the week, the Messiah brings the sacrifice. He causes to end that what was in the Old Testament sanctuary, because the real has come. Okay, the next point, prophetic eschatology. I have explained it to you that it's about the things that happen in the end time, eschatology. So Daniel chapter 12, there is a time of the end coming. And he said, you should seal the book, but then you can go to the end. Uh, but, and then in the end time, knowledge will increase and people will understand. Not as a threat, but as a promise. God keeps his promise. So a prophetic context of eschatology is never, is never fear determining. It is always encouraging because it encourages us to be faithful to God and if you are faithful to God, why to 
fear anything. I mean, we have seen the Daniel, his friends, and all these people. They were not afraid people because they had a good relationship with God, not even fire, not even the lions. Nothing could make them afraid because they had a good, a good relationship with God and they knew nothing can happen to them if, God, if it's not in God's plan. So, reflecting about the book of Daniel, we discover that there's a part of true story in the book of Daniel. And you cannot separate it as I have done it uh, so accurately because we have also part of a story in chapter 9. Daniel is praying and this happened. He was waiting for the angel and this happened. So the angel explained to him this happened, this is historic. But then you have the part of prophecy because he explained to him the prophecy. And then we have also the um, experience, the crisis and the deliverance. I mean, we have had the, the three chapters, comparing the three chapters, and we said this is comparing crisis situation, deliverance situation. And then we have also the, the prophecy part. And it's interesting. Prophecy is not like a puzzle game. Prophecy is something that you can only understand with much plenty of prayer. And if you are ready to put the discoveries into the whole picture of identity. So, what about the prophecy and the end time? We have mentioned the 2,300 years, evenings and mornings, the 70 weeks, the sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary, solving the problems of the sin. And sin, of course, understood as separation from God. Now the problem is today that there are tendencies even in, in the Adventist church to say, well, why should we speak about sin? We make, we make a bad heart to the people speaking about sin. But you see, this is something God is speaking about. It is a problem. I mean, if people have cancer, you can ignore it, but the cancer will work. So if, if sin is a problem, we can ignore it, but sin will kill so many people. So this is why we really need to address it. And this brings us to another element. We need to see that there's an interdependence of the different aspects of Adventist identity and also of the teachings of the Bible. For example, speaking about identity, it is, oh, you cannot see it very much, but I will try to, to read it to you. The first one, it's about, about um, uh, creation. So if you have, let me see if I can, well, doesn't work. It works, but I don't know how to. It's a bit complicated and, okay, no problem. So, the creation. Now you see today we have certain people who question creation. They say, well, of course God might have created matter sometime, some million or billion of years ago, and then 
about, well, some thousands or tens of thousands of years ago, ago, maybe some evolutionary process has started. And they try to combine evolution and creation. But you see, if we leave out biblical creation, then we can't forget the Sabbath. Because if everything came in by evolution, you can't forget the Sabbath. Why having the Sabbath? The Sabbath is only there because there were six days of creation and the Sabbath was a rest day. So if we deny creation, we deny the Sabbath. And if we deny the Sabbath, we will also um, deny the um, obedience to God. And if you deny obedience to God, then we have to deny sin. I mean, if the world has come into being by evolution, when came the sin? And where did it come from? And what to do against the sin? You understand? So, the question of sanctuary, you can't forget it. So if we, if we abandon creation, we can abandon the Sabbath, we can abandon the sanctuary, we can abandon the law of God, we can abandon, in fact, everything. Yeah? We can abandon even uh, the question of redemption, of forgiveness, of conversion, of restoration. We can abandon the death of Christ. We can abandon Christ himself. We don't need him. And we can abandon eternity and the second coming of Christ. You understand? So if we take out only one element, we lose everything else. So this is why it's so important to get a clear picture about the corporate identity of the Adventist Church from a prophetic perspective. Creation is central. And if one doesn't work anymore, all others do not work anymore. Then, of course, it's important to have the right, to be careful with the biblical interpretation, but as we have only nine minutes left, I would like to ask some questions, because it's important to ask, what are we taking from here with us? So my question would be, what does this change in your thinking? What does this change in your life? And what does this change in your mission? Do you think that a prophetic approach to our church's identity and also to the personal identity will change something in our lives? Do you believe that if we stay and if we are clear about who we are, do you believe that then more people will come to church? Let me give you one little example. A few years ago, maybe 15 or a little bit more years ago, uh, in the United States, one particular denomination was not the Adventist Church. They decided to define more strictly what they believe. 
and they defined their, also their lifestyle more strictly. Some people were very scared and they said, oh, now, now nobody will come to church anymore. The fact was, a few people went out from the church because they didn't like it. But in just a few years, the membership, the membership doubled. You know why? Because people knew exactly with whom they have to deal. Why does iPhone or Apple have so many fans? Because it's clear what it is about and what you can expect. And the same is with God's church. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.